And uh, in this section of Jesus' teaching, what he's doing is he's highlighting the upside-down character of his kingdom. You see, his kingdom is one that is unlike any other kingdom. It's not like any one that we know. And as we began uh, this section in chapter 18 a few weeks ago, we saw Jesus turning the world's understanding of greatness on its head. We saw how in Jesus' kingdom, the way up is actually down. And the way to become great is not by being concerned about your own good, about being, but about being radically concerned and radically committed to the good of others. And last week, Aaron fleshed that out a little bit further as he showed us how citizens of Jesus' kingdom care enough to confront a brother or sister who is wandering or straying uh, in, uh, in sin. And see, the way of the world is to just ignore that, to let someone run off, do their own thing, or, or to confront some out of pride or out of uh, a desire for vindication of yourself. But, but we saw in Jesus' kingdom that, the, that the, reason why we, the reason why we have those hard conversations with one another is we do it, we do it out of love, not out of pride. It's, it's for the good of our brother or sister rather than for our own vindication. You see, Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kind of kingdom. You see, but as we'll see this morning, it's not just his view of greatness or confrontation that Jesus' kingdom turns upside down. In fact, that's going to probably seem like light work uh, compared to where we're headed this morning. You see, in our, chat, in our passage this morning, Jesus' kingdom, the character of his upside-down kingdom, it comes face-to-face with probably the most foundational and significant relationship in any culture, in any kingdom, And that's the relationship of marriage. You see, in chapter 19, Jesus highlights the upside-down nature with which his kingdom approaches marriage and divorce and singleness. And and what Jesus had to say about those things, you need to hear this, it was at odds with his culture of his day. It's not just at odds with ours. It was at odds with his culture, the culture of his day as well. You see, and, and in it was the reason why it's at odds with his culture and with ours is because what he has to say about those things is fundamentally at odds with the default mode of the human heart. You see, and in highlighting and contrasting between the upside-down understanding of marriage and divorce and singleness in his kingdom, with the default mode of the human heart, Jesus, what he's doing is he is graciously confronting us this morning. He's graciously confronting this one. And I just want to be clear. No matter where you're at this morning, whether you are married or single or divorced or somewhere in between one of those things, Jesus' word has something to say to you this morning. And I can guarantee you that his words are going to stand at odds with the default mode of your heart in some way this morning. But as we begin, I just want to, just want to help us see, right? See, but it, Jesus is like the loving brother that we saw in chapter 18 last week. Right, who's not content to just let his brother or sister wander off into sin. No, he says he's like the loving brother who comes after, right? Out of love, longing for our good to confront us, to graciously confront us. You see, the simple truth is that the way our culture approaches marriage and divorce and singleness, all those things, it's not working. And it wasn't working for the way Jesus' culture was either. You see, and what happens in our past this morning is that Jesus is wanting to show us a better way. And he's wanting to show us a way that actually leads to life, a way that actually leads to blessing, a way that actually leads to joy. All the things we think we're getting the way we do it, that we're not actually getting. Jesus wants to show us a better way. And so with that in mind, let's pray, and we'll study God's word together as we begin. God, we come before you this morning, and we just really say we need you. God, especially I sense my need for you this morning as I teach on, on just issues that are hard, that are difficult to wrestle with sometimes, especially in our culture. 
God, and I want to be, uh, God, I want to say what you have to say. And so, God, as I've studied and I've prepped, I've spent time talking with you, I know about it. And, God, I just ask that you would empower me by your spirit to teach rightly this morning with, with humility and with compassion, God, but with truth. And so, God, I need your help. And, and we as well, God, we need your help to be able to hear and respond and to put ourselves under the authority of your word. God, that's not the default mode of our heart. We want to do things our way, God, but we need you to enable us to respond rightly to you. And so we ask humbly that you would. And so, God, we come dependent on you this morning, God, but also just expectant, God, as you promised to always meet us as we study your word. And so we look forward to what you'll do in us this morning. We pray these things for our good, for your glory, God. Amen. This morning, we're in Matthew chapter 19. Verse 1 begins this way, and when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee, and he went to the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them uh, there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female, and he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning, for I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. For the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. And Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live as eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. For the one who can accept this should accept it. Now, as we study God's word this morning, before we begin, I just want to begin by acknowledging a few things. We are going to be addressing some things that are just frankly hard in our world and in our, in our culture this morning. And what the Bible teaches about these things often flies in the face of the way that the world and our culture views these things. But it's important for us as we seek to put ourselves under the authority of God's word that we, that we do this. So we don't skip over this. We're studying the whole gospel of Matthew together. And so if we were to skip over this, we'd be skipping over God's word. And so it's important that we do that. But also, I just want to acknowledge that for many of us, these issues hit really close to home. As soon as I mention the words marriage or divorce or singleness, there are things that you have been wrestling with or that you have wrestled with that, that come to mind. There are family members or friends that come to mind, real people with real lives and real situations that come to mind. This is not like this far-off, distant kind of theological topic. It's something that hits very close to home. I want to say this, especially divorce has especially affected the vast majority of people, whether you have gone through it or you know someone who has or your family or your parents or, or someone along those lines. You see, and divorce is hard and it's painful, but sadly, divorced people have often been viewed as second-class citizens in the church. Some Christians kind of talk about divorce as like the one thing you can never come back from, right? I just need you to hear me out loud this morning before we begin. That's a lie. That's not how God's word talks about it, and that's not true. That's, as your pastor at this church, that is not how we see you, because that's not how Jesus sees you, right? Additionally, I want to reiterate, as we studied this morning, no matter where you are at, whether you are married or single or divorced, wherever you're at relationally, God's word has something important to say to you. And so wherever you are, whoever you are, God's word has something to speak to you this morning. It's not for someone else. God's word has something to say to you, and I want to encourage you. Ask him to speak to you this morning. 
And conditionally, as we study, I hope what you sense in me is a tone and a posture of humility, one of grace, one of compassion, but also one of urgent importance. You see, the, the things that we're wrestling with this morning are big deal kinds of things. They're really important. And again, if you have questions about things that we talk about, we're not going to have a chance to do the deep dive on everything. There is so much here. And so if you have questions or you want to process things more, I want to encourage you, come find me afterwards. Ask me a question. Shoot me an email. I'd love to help you talk through some of that kind of stuff. So as we study today, passage, what I want to show you is that there's three ways in which Jesus' kingdom turns the world's view of marriage upside down. Three ways in which Jesus' kingdom turns the world's view of marriage upside down. We see an upside down purpose of marriage. We see the upside down commitment to marriage. And we see the upside down calling of marriage. So the upside down purpose of marriage. See, passage all begins, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to test Jesus, asking him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And what they're doing here is they're trying to get Jesus to enter the debate of his day surrounding the reasons why men could divorce their wives. And we'll get into that more in a minute. But what sticks out, what's really important that you see is that Jesus' response begins by sidestepping their question altogether. You see, instead of articulating the conditions under which a marriage can end, Jesus begins by highlighting the, God's good purpose and design for a healthy marriage in the beginning. And he roots those things all the way back in creation, all the way back in Genesis. In verse 4, he's quoting Genesis 1, when he says, Haven't you read that from the beginning the Creator made them male and female? In verse 5, he's quoting Genesis 2, 24, when he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. And I just, I cannot overstate how important it is for us to see what Jesus is saying here. You see, the first thing that Jesus is highlighting for us is he's saying that marriage is God's idea. It's, it's his design. It's, it's not man's idea. It's not society's idea. It's not culture's idea. You see, marriage is God's design, and it was his from the very beginning. It is rooted in creation itself. Now, I don't really work out. Maybe you can tell, right? Um, but in college, I had a friend that loved working out. It was like his thing. And so I was trying to just be a good friend, so I would go with him pretty regularly and would go work out. And there's one time, I remember, we were planning on meeting him. I had already got there, and he called me or texted me or something, and he's like, I'm not going to make it tonight. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm like, well, I'm already here. I might as well just, you know, go for it, right? I guess i got to be honest. It was like the epitome of a fail meme. You know, I'm just like standing in front of the exercise equipment like, I'm not sure Maybe it goes like this. I don't really know how this is, what muscle this is working, right? It was, it was pretty tragic. It was pretty tragic. And you see, the, I didn't understand the design or the purpose of any of those machines, how any of that stuff worked. I had no idea what was going on. Uh, I didn't actually work out. I got worked out. That's what happened in that situation, right? You see, and that was because I didn't understand the design or the purpose of what was going on there. You see, Genesis emphasizes the fact that God is the creator, that he is the designer of both humanity and of marriage. And if we want to understand those things rightly, if we want to use them rightly, then we've got to look to the designer first. If we don't know what the purpose of, of those things is, if we don't know what the design of them is, we're going to use them wrongly. You see, in Genesis 1.27, it teaches, that verse that Jesus quotes in verse 4, it teaches that God's design for humanity fundamentally was in his image. It reads this way, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You see, last year, we spent four entire weeks as we went through the, uh, the early chapters in the book of Genesis 
talking about the significance and the implications of that, of what it means to be made in God's image. That is like basement level, foundational level, fundamental truth that changes everything. You see, and the other thing that Genesis 1.27 highlights about being made in the image of God, it, it highlights the incredible equality of men and women who are made as God's image bearers. You see, men and women are both equally created and both equally bear God's image. Men and women both have the same identity and dignity and value and worth because men and women are both created in the image of God. You see, there is incredible equality there, but there is also real meaningful diversity. You see, Genesis 1.27, it doesn't just tell us that men and women are the same. In fact, it emphasizes the distinction between male and female. And it's that distinction that leads Jesus to Jesus' quote, the second one in verse 5, where he quotes Genesis 2, which highlights the, ne- the necessity of men and women as God's image bears. You see, men and women are different. There's lots of ways. Just turn to someone next to you and you'll know like, how different it is. You, if you've existed for any amount of time, right, you know how different men and women are. And that difference there, as Scripture talks, is not just an added bonus or a happy accident or just something that's frustrating. Right? It's not a liability. It says Jesus articulates it's a necessity. See, Genesis chapter 2, in verse 18, it says that God talks and he says, it's not good for man to be alone, and so I'll make a helper suitable for him. And when we read Genesis 1, that, that idea of not good, when that comes up, that should shock us because for like 17 times over the course of the first few verses, over and over, God saw it was good, 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 and then you get not good. And you're like, whoa, hold up, right? Something, something is very different here. Something is important, right? You see, creation is not complete until both men and women are present. Creation is not very good until both men and women are present. Why? Why is that the case? Why is that so important? Why does that get emphasized? You see, because alone, Adam could not fulfill his identity or purpose as God's image-bearing representative. God said he needed a helper. That word helper is, is not assistant, That word helper is, what it means is a necessary and indispensable ally. One with with which whom you cannot go without. You see, but it's God who creates as man's necessary ally, not just another one who is like him. Because humanity needed difference and distinction to bear God's image. You see, in order to live out the identity and the purposes God's image bears, we need both sameness and difference. Um, both unity and diversity, because the gods whose image we bear is characterized by sameness and difference. You see, the Trinity is one God in three parts, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and so humanity is one humanity in two parts, male and female. You see, there is sameness and there is difference, because that's the character and that's the nature of God. That's why Genesis 2.24 reads this way, and Jesus quotes, he says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. You see, God's design for the purpose of marriage is that it's a way that humanity uniquely bears his image. You see, Ephesians 5 takes this one step even further, and it talks about how marriage is, is actually a picture of the gospel. It's, it's revealing God's character and his purposes even further in the gospel. You see, and so if the purpose of marriage is to bear God's image, to reflect his nature and his character into the world, right? then what Jesus is saying is that it means that marriage is not actually about Marriage is not actually about you. It is about God. You see, that stands fundamentally at odds with everything our culture believes about marriage. 
You see, our world wants us to believe that our marriage and our sexuality, that's unto us, that it's about us, that it's about our happiness and our fulfillment and our joy and our satisfaction, because, and it should just be done because of that in whatever ways we decide it should be done, whatever ways we think brings about the most happiness or the most pleasure or the most joy or whatever it is, right? Tim Keller in his message, The Marriage, of, a marriage and Gospel Focus, he quotes a New York Times article by a woman named Tara Parker Pope entitled, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. She expresses the very sentiment that I'm speaking about here. She writes this way. She says, for centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution, and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership, and they want partners to make their own lives more interesting, to help watch out, to help them gain, uh, attain their own valued goals See, marriage used to be about us, now it's about me, and the best marriages are those that bring about satisfaction to the individual. See, that's the epitome of the way that our world thinks about marriage. It is fundamentally about me. It's about my happiness, my fulfillment, and my joy. See, this is the same thinking that was at the heart of the Pharisees' question about divorce that they bring to Jesus, right? See, if marriage is about your happiness, if it's primarily about your success, if it's all about your pleasure, then of course you want the widest possible way out when inevitably, for any or, any, for any or all reasons, that doesn't work out. You see, this is the essence of what it means to have a consumer relationship. It is great to have a consumer relationship with Target right? I have a consumer relationship with Target. I go there, I buy things I need, I don't give anything back to them, right? Like, it's a consumer kind of relationship. I see, they, do you have what I need? If not, I'm out, right? You see, that's an amazingly great way to relate to Target. It is a terrible way to relate to another human being, especially one in marriage. You see, two consumers in a marriage suck all of the resources and kill it. See, the Pharisees' question, it reveals that they fundamentally viewed marriage as about them. You see, they were consumers, and Jesus' response turns that thinking on his head. He said, in his upside-down kingdom, marriage is not about you. Marriage is actually about God. See, the purpose of marriage is to reveal something about him, about his character, about his nature to the world around you. See, so that's why we do it in the way that he designed it. And that's why it's ultimately, because it's ultimately about him, not about us. You see, it's in the incredible unity and equality that we see in marriage between one man and one woman becoming one flesh that we reflect the equality and the unity of the Trinity. And it's in the sacrificial service of husbands and the humble submission of wives that we reflect the diversity and the humility of the Trinity with one another. And it is in the permanence of marriage and the commitment to marriage that we reflect the security and the consistency of the spirit of the Trinity. You see, marriage is intended to reflect the God who designed it. You see, that's upside down to this world. And it was upside down to Jesus' world as well. But I want you to hear this. It's actually good news. You see, if, if marriage is all about you, if, if, it, if it is all about you, then it is about your self-fulfillment, then you need to find somebody who is equally committed to their self-fulfillment, who is also decides that there's nothing wrong with you. And you also can say there's nothing wrong with them, right? Because it always needs to be about you, right? And if you must find someone who thinks nothing is wrong with you and who you think nothing is wrong with them and who you are able to totally just serve, like help each other meet your total needs, right? I just need you to hear, that person doesn't exist. 
That person that doesn't exist, Tim Keller writes this way, he says, all human beings are self-centered sinners, including Christians, and when you bring any two self-centered people together, even if they believe the gospel, it is still going to be very, very difficult. You see, you can't find that person. And so there is this immense pressure to be that person or to find that person, and you never find them because they don't exist. You see, but God's word, it frees us from the pressure of finding the perfect spouse who will meet all of our needs. It says, no, no spouse can meet all of your needs. None of them will be perfect, but they don't have to be. See, because the purpose of your spouse is not to satisfy you, but to help you grow in being satisfied in God as you live out your identity and your purpose as his image-bearing representatives. See, that's the purpose. Furthermore, as we lean into God's good design for marriage, there is incredible life. Right? As we selflessly and sacrificially love and serve one another in marriage, there's life and there's blessing there. And see, the truth is that as Christians, we often don't live that way. You see, and, the, and that more than any governmental law or Supreme Court decision is behind why our culture fails to see the biblical definition of marriage as not only something that's good, but they see it as something that is dangerous or even evil. See, husbands have used the Bible's call to headship as a license to selfishly run their homes instead of selflessly, sacrificially lay down their lives for the good of their wives and their families. Women have seen the Bible's call to submission as demeaning instead of a gracious invitation to imitate Jesus who submitted to the Father. You see, too often our marriages are no different than the me marriages of the world all around us. And that cannot be because God's character and his name and his glory, and that's what's at stake. You see, God is not a consumer. He is a covenant keeper. And so at the heart of marriage, we long to be a people, not just who consume but who keep our covenants so that we may reflect the covenant-keeping God in which marriage is designed. Oftentimes when I do people's marriages, they ask if they can write their own vows, and I usually try to discourage that. And if they're dead set on it, I almost always say, well, I need to see them first. Because invariably, when people write their own vows, what they, in every situation I've experienced so far, what they always write reveals that they don't understand what vows are about. Right? That they're like, most of their vows are, I love you, I promise to love you, Cool, that's great, right? You see, but vows are not about this day. They're not about the easy day when you feel loving. You see, vows are about the hard day when you don't want to love someone, when you've been sinned against or hurt or wronged, right? You see, vows are about a promise to be faithful, not just on the easy days, but on the hard days. You see, that's the kind of God who has promised to be faithful to us. That's his character. That's his nature. You see, we want to be characterized by uh, marriages that are full of covenant-keeping things, right, who are committed to one another. I want to call you men in this room. To, I want to call you to lay down your lives for the sake of your wives, to, to die to your own desires and your own goals and your own dreams, and to live to serve and bless your wives and your families. And wives, I want to call you, I want to invite you to a humble submission to your husbands, not because they are always worthy of it, but because Jesus is. He's always worthy of obedience. And he calls wives to submit to their husbands. If you're not married, start practicing the art of dying to yourself and living for the good of others in the community now. Don't wait until you're married to start doing that. Start practicing what it means to die to self and to live for the good of others. This kind of marriage relationship is upside down to the world, but it reveals the God who designed it and it points to his glory and his grace. And so let us give ourselves to that for his sake. 
You see, it's only in light of when we see what marriage is all about. Jesus' response begins that way. He says, marriage is not about you. It's about God. And that's the framework for understanding the rest of this passage. You see, it's not just the purpose of marriage that's upside down in Jesus' kingdom. It's the commitment to marriage that's upside down in his kingdom as well. You see, the upside-down commitment of marriage, right, says that in Jesus' kingdom, right, divorce is a last resort, not an escape route. You see, I mentioned earlier the Pharisees, their question about divorce, it revealed that they think marriage is about them. And what that led to was a culture in which it was very easy to get divorced and also pretty common, not unlike our own culture. In verse 3 and verse 7, the, the Pharisees, they're, they're referencing a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, and where God gives them some ground rules for, for divorce through, through Moses. It says this way, if a man marries a woman, uh, marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, he can, uh, because he finds something indecent about her, he can divorce her. And the question that these Pharisees are asking, it, it reveals that their assumption of this interpretation around this, and there was basically two, two schools of thought in Jesus' day. Uh, one school of thought taught that, that word indecent, the reason that you could divorce your wife is, is if she, only if she had committed some form of sexual adultery or sexual immorality, and in that case you should divorce her. And the other school of thought was, which basically became the prevailing view of the day, the majority opinion of Jesus' day, interpreted it much more broadly and basically said that whenever a wife did anything displeasing, her husband could divorce her. We literally have quotes from first century rabbis in which they articulated that a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled a dish for him or even if he found another fairer than she. See, basically this led to men divorcing their wives for all kinds of reasons, verse 3, for any and every reason. And Jesus says, that is not the way it should be. That is not the way it should be. Verse 8, he says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But that's not the way it was from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality marries another one and commits adultery. You see, Jesus' command here, it upends the thinking of both of these schools of thought. It upends the thinking of both of these schools. To the first school, he affirms their narrow limitations on what the grounds for divorce, but what he clarifies them is that divorce is never commanded. It's only permitted. It's only conceded. He says, even when there is adultery, this is really significant. You see, Jesus is saying, adultery can kill marriages. It can kill a marriage, but it doesn't have to. See, adultery is incredibly painful. It, is incre- it rips a soul apart, but it doesn't have to be a death sentence. To those in the prevailing view, the every and every reason camp, Jesus radically narrows their view. See, the prevailing thinking of the day that was divorce was kind of like your, ple- your pre-planned escape route. It was kind of like the built-in back door for your marriage, right? If or when this marriage doesn't work out, if it, when it starts to go south, when it stops meeting my needs, when it stops being fulfilling for me personally, when I find somebody better, I want to make sure that I have an easy way out. And Jesus says, no. No, you've, you've missed it altogether. No, divorce should be a last resort, not a pre-planned escape route. J.D. Greer writes this way. He says, divorce should be as radical as amputating a limb. There are times when amputation is indeed necessary. But any doctor would be run out of the practice if he constantly and quickly said, let's just amputate it. Hangnail, amputation. Sprained ankle, varicose veins, just cut it off, right? You see, amputation is the last thing that you do in order to save a life after you have exhausted all other options. 
See, if you are here this morning and if you are considering divorce, I want to encourage you, don't make that decision lightly. Talk to your small group leader. Talk to Aaron or I as your pastors. Don't make that decision in alone. Bring that to others. Let them help you and walk through it with you. It is incredibly difficult, incredibly hard, but you don't need to do it alone. And so the question is, why is divorce such a big deal? Why, why does Jesus take it so seriously? Why, why are its justifications so limited? And the reason is because marriage is about reflecting God's image and revealing his nature and his character to the world so that people would come to know and see and experience him. And divorce, it mars that image. That's why it's such a big deal to him. Now, for those of you who have been through divorce, I just want to be overly and overtly clear. It is true that God is opposed to divorce. Malachi says that God hates divorce. You probably do too. But I need you to hear this. God does not hate you. God does not hate you. In fact, he hates divorce because he loves you and he knows the pain it causes personally. Jeremiah 3, God talks about how his own people have been overtly and repeatedly unfaithful to him. And in verse 8, he says that I've given faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adultery. See, God knows the pain and the heartache of divorce firsthand, not from afar, not at a distance. God knows the heartache and the pain of that up close. You see, and he is out ahead of you. He is compassionate in love for you, seeking to keep you from pain like a good father who knows what will harm his kids. He's not a judgmental father who looks down on their failures. He is a loving father who knows the pain that his kids are in. You see, I'm sure it can be easy to feel like divorce is kind of this varsity level problem that fundamentally changes how God sees you. But I just need, again, to be clear, that is a lie. That is a lie. See, there is only one thing that changes how God sees you, and it has nothing to do with your marital status. It has everything to do with your spiritual status. And you, if you are in Christ, then you are clothed with his righteousness. You are clean and spotless and viewed as lovely. That's who Jesus says you are. That's the one thing that changes how he views you. I need you to hear that this morning. Now, no matter where you are at in this important discussion, Jeremiah 3 doesn't end with God's pain and his heartache over his adulterous bride. It ends with his promise of grace and reconciliation if she would turn. You see, God is in the business of redemption. And he wasn't done with Israel, and he is not done with you either. I need you to hear that this morning. You see, Jesus, as we've studied, has laid out the upside-down purpose of marriage in his kingdom. He's the upside-down covenantal commitment of marriage in his kingdom. And lastly, what we see this morning is the upside-down calling of marriage. You see, the disciples, they, they hear Jesus' response. They hear his call to this, this commitment to marriage without a pre-planned escape route. And they say, if the call to commitment to marriage is so high, maybe we should just not get married. And Jesus' response is, maybe, maybe. He says, marriage isn't for everyone. Verse 11 and 12, Jesus here is turning the view of singleness upside down. You see, marriage, he's saying, is not the pinnacle. You need to hear that this morning, right? Marriage is not the pinnacle of society. It's not the pinnacle of relationships. If we believe that what we have to do is deny Jesus' full humanity, because Jesus was not married, and if he was not married and marriage is the pinnacle, then he wasn't. You see, that argument doesn't work out. See, the truth is that Jesus is the ultimate picture of what it means to be human, what it means to bear God's image. And he wasn't married. So marriage is not the pinnacle. But Jesus also says here, singleness is not a punishment. 
See, and this would have been crazy in Jesus' day. You see, it was wildly uncommon for Jew, in Jewish culture for someone to remain unmarried. And Jesus, in our passage, he gives a few different examples or reasons why some people should not get married. And that's all the eunuch stuff in verses 11 and 12. And the truth is, we just do not have time to do the deep dive on that. There is at least two or three sermons on that topic uh, to get into that this morning. But if you have questions about that, again, come talk to me. Instead, what I want to do is just hit the big rock, right? What's the big idea that Jesus is getting at in those verses? And it's this. Marriage and singleness are both callings. Marriage and singleness are both callings. Verse 11, he says, Not everyone can accept this word, this word about marriage. Only to those whom whom it has been given. Verse 12, the one who can accept it, the one to whom it has been given to accept it, this word about singleness should accept it. You see, marriage and singleness are both callings, and they're both callings to live for the glory of God, but in different ways. You see, and in both cases, in all situations, you need God to empower you to live that way. You see, the truth is that you cannot live as a married person person for God's glory and his name without his calling and without his power. And you cannot live as a single person for the glory of God without his calling and without his power. You see, and unless you see it that way, you'll never be able to endure either of those things. Unless you see them as a calling from him about his glory for his name, you will always be raging against God, right? God, why did you give me this husband or wife? God, why won't you give me the husband or wife that I need? God, I don't think I can stay in this marriage. God, I don't think I can stay single forever, right? You'll always just be raging against God. You see, but if you see both of these things as callings, it doesn't mean that you deny your desire. If you're single, it doesn't mean you deny a desire to get married. But it means every day you choose to die to the the place that God has put you in. Again, it doesn't mean you give up those desires, but it means you say, God, whatever you would have for me today, I want to use it for your name and for your glory. The same is true of marriage. God, God, I want to use this for your name, for your glory. God, whatever you want me to do, I will do. You see, marriage and singleness, they are both callings from the Lord in which you need his power and his help to actually live out the purpose of each of those things. You see, and the truth is, is that if we end here, then you just have an example that you can never follow, right? If we end here, then you just have an example that you can never follow. You see, that's why we always get to Jesus. You see, Jesus is not just your example. He is our power for both singleness and marriage and what he has called us into this morning. You see, Jesus is the one who perfectly revealed what marriage pointed to. You see, he is the ultimate image bearer of God himself. He is the true and better bridegroom who has loved and been faithful to his spouse. You see, he perfectly also lived as the single man for the glory of the Father, and he never sinned, and he chose to live for the glory of God and the good of his kingdom. And you need to hear this. He did that for you. You see, he sacrificially loved and served you as the ultimate bridegroom and he remained faithful to you even though you have been unfaithful to him so that in love you might respond in faithfulness to him you see and the truth is that he remained pure for you so that he might instead in turn purify you you see and if we want to obey jesus's calling to see marriage and divorce and singleness as he helps us to see it then we must see him as the one who has been those things for us who has done them for us. You see, we've got to see how he did it for us first. He's not just our example. He is the one who frees us from slavery to the, to the ways of the world and the thinking of the world. And he is the one who has empowers us to be the people that he calls us to be. You see, you cannot do it without him. See, and every week when we take communion, that's what we're remembering. 
That's what we're celebrating, right? That we're remembering all that Jesus did for us. His body, his blood, broken and shed for us to purify us and to empower us to be his kingdom people, renewed and transformed in his world. You see, communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Nothing other than faith in Jesus can do that. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember, to remember all that he has done for us so that we're going to be empowered to obey and to live in light of who he has called us to be. You see, the bread and the juice, they're in the back. There's a table on the left and one on the right. During our time of worship, go back and you dip the bread in the juice and you take communion. That's how, that's how you do it here at River City. No one's going to dismiss you. You go as you feel led. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, if he is your savior, then whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. Do it as a way to remember and celebrate him, the one who has loved you and given himself for you. And as we take communion, as we sing this morning, I want to encourage you, talk with God this morning. Where is his upside-down kingdom graciously confronting your heart this morning? Where is his upside-down kingdom graciously confronting your, your heart this morning? Maybe what you are realizing is that you have been viewing your marriage as about you. You have seen it as for your good and for your pleasure and for your purposes, and that's what you've seen it about. And what you're hearing this morning is that Jesus says, no, no, no. I have something much bigger, much better, much grander than that. He's confronting your upside-down view of the purpose of marriage. Maybe he's confronting your upside-down view of the commitment of marriage, and you've had a low view of that, and divorce is just what it is, right? And I want to encourage you to see it the way that Jesus does. It is an incredibly big deal. It is really important that we take it seriously, because at the root of what marriage is, is about reflecting God's image and his character. Maybe this morning, God has helped calling, he's confronting you with the upside-down calling of marriage. And he's inviting you maybe to die to your own desires for a season or for a time that you might live for his purposes and his glory. I want to encourage you, ask him to graciously confront your heart for your good. But more than that, ask him. Ask him to empower you to obey him and to walk with him into what it looks like to pursue those things for his glory. You see, Jesus is a good king. And his kingdom, it is wildly upside down. But it is a kingdom that brings life and joy and blessing if by his grace and in his power you might embrace it. You see, you cannot choose to embrace it without him doing it in you. You need him to shape your heart around it. And he wants to do that for you for your good. He wants to bless you. He wants good for you. But it means that we must submit to him as the good king and to shape our lives around his kingdom, not our own. He longs for that, for our good, for his glory. And so to that end, let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you this morning. God, we are so grateful for you, that you are a God who has loved us. God, that you are a God who showed us what marriage is really all about, and you are a God who knows the pain and the heartache of divorce. You are not far and distant from it. And so, God, we ask graciously that you would help us to be your kingdom people. God, that as you graciously have confronted us with your word this morning, God, I pray that whatever I have said that has been fruitful or good, accurate to your word, God, it would cause, you would cause it to stick in people's hearts, that you would confront people graciously with your words, not mine. God, whatever I've said this morning that may, that's not helpful, God, I just pray that you would just cause that stuff to, just to go. God, what I long for is your word to change people's hearts, and so, God, we need you to do that in us. And so, God, God would, we, would you empower us to be a people with humility, God, with graciousness. 
God, who come to you to long to surrender our lives, every part under your good authority. God, help us to be your upside-down kingdom people. God, for our good, for the good of others, most of all, for your great glory in all the world we pray. Amen.